0: Welcome to
1: Mortals, a podcast where we explore how humans have dealt with death throughout history.
0: From embalming and epitaphs to mourning and morgues,
2: we are taking a look at rites, rituals, and practices from around the world.
1: Mortals podcast is for the morbidly curious or the curiously morbid.
0: This week, we are talking about First World War cemeteries. Please be advised, this episode contains mention of war mass burials disinterment of human remains and of course death now let's get on to the show Uh, welcome back to another episode of Mortals. This is our uh, 17th episode this season. We've been doing oh my such a good job. Um, and I'm going to be talking about First World War cemeteries today. And listener, you might be a little confused. You say, hey, Janine, didn't you already do that last year? <laughs> no, I did not. Uh, last year we talked it. about memorials.
2: Yes. Which-, which is a different kind of of. Uh, Mortuary structure, yes, yeah,
0: postmortem so the
2: structure, architecture.
0: Memorials are in the context that I was talking about. Them are intended to be for the people who lost loved ones to have a place to mourn in their local village or wherever, because the body of their loved one is buried elsewhere. This year, we're going to be talking about where the bodies are buried. <laughs>
2: The other half of this pizza.
0: Yes, the other half this of is the, the equation.
2: This is the left beef part of the nun with left beef. <laughs> pizza of World War I uh, victims.
0: <laughs> the oh memorials God. are the nun pizza and the
2: cemeteries <laughs>
0: are the left beef.
2: Yeah, because that's where the meat is. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. Is that too crass? No,
1: it's uh, not. It's perfect. (laughs) This
2: Um, is what it's like being friends with me in real life, is these are the jokes you have to put up with.
1: I mean, it was was pretty good. It was pretty good.
0: Okay, um, so for the benefit of people who are listening to this episode first, or who have listened to some episodes but haven't listened to the first one, I do want to do a brief recap of World War 1 in general. There's going Let's to be a it. longer form version of this in the First World War Memorials episode that I did in season 1, so if you're really curious, you can go back and listen to that one. But I do want to do a recap this time around because when I am listening to podcasts and they talk about the same subject they talked about before, I always appreciate it when they do a recap because I usually listen to things in order. And usually I have forgotten <laughs> a lot of what they said the first time. So <laughs> we're going for it.
2: <clears throat> Hell yeah.
0: So for those of you who don't know, World War one was fought from July, 1914 to November, 1918, the war was fought in and drew upon many countries, colonial empire, which spread the conflict to African nations, to North American nations, to Asian nations, basically all around the globe. Although the main spark was in Europe. So the empires of Europe got all of their colonial empire involved, hence the first world war, though it was the great war at the time. We have combatants on one side, such as the United Kingdom, France, Russia, Japan, the United States, uh, Serbia, India, Canada, Australia, Belgium, it goes on and on. And on the other side, we have the central powers as they're referred to, which includes the German empire, Austria, Hungary, the Ottoman empire, and uh, a little ways into the war, Bulgaria. Keep in mind, you also have the, the colonies of these places who may or may not be involved in a very integral way, or maybe in just a surface level way. So if you look at a map, it's, yeah, that looks like a world war.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Europe. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was also like a major arms race leading up to the war that made it semi inevitable because there was this like false idea that, oh, well, if, if we're armed to the teeth, we'll discourage other people from arming to the teeth. And so everybody was arming to the teeth until everybody's drowning in weapons and you got to do something with it. And it's just a, a veritable powder keg.
0: Yes, um, it, it
2: was also from what I've learned.
0: it was also a from what I understand. One of the motivations of Germany was, well, Britain and France have these great big empires. Yeah. We want empire as well, and they did have a few colonies, but imperialism—the real cause of World War One.
2: It, uh-huh. It's a much more
0: complex than that. But
2: I wonder if there's a smash cut of that song that's like whoa. What is it good for? Absolutely nothing. But they just replace war with imperialism and somehow smash it into that one syllable space. It sounds to me like you have a song to write. It's... I'll I'll go BDG a song about imperialism. Catch Mariah doing that on our off season. Um, um, and so also, if <laughs> you haven't listened to Brian David Gilbert's Stayin' Alive as sung by a vampire, what are you doing? Go listen to it. It's hysterical. It is quite funny. Um, so... Those are the the
0: belligerent countries that are involved. The fighting is majority taking place within Europe, though you can say took place a minor bit in Asia as well, in Turkey or the Ottoman Empire, um, but mostly focused in Europe. I really usually use this quote. I used it in my um, master's project. I used it, I think, in the first first World War episode I did. But uh, the First World War has been called murderous without precedent and an average of 5,600 combatants were killed each day that the war continued. So that's a lot of bodies to deal with. Additionally, the style of warfare was really, really heavy on offense, which was very hard to defend against. Basically, you have these big guns and uh, like shell and mortar cannons against men in uniforms and thin helmets, essentially. Tanks were kind of sort of being developed at the time, though they weren't very advanced. Tanks really come into play in World War II. So basically, you have human body versus machinery. um, So that does end up killing a lot of people. Total deaths, I did some looking up and about 9 to 10 million allied power combat dead. And about 7 to 8 million Central Powers combat dead total for the First World War. So that's like up to 18 million dead bodies.
2: Oh my god. Yes. Um, Oh boy. If you just deleted half of Canada, that would be uh, close to the known numbers, because who knows how many people were additional casualties in other ways, right? In uh, like weapons manufacturing, in uh, post-war casualties from addiction and trauma and suicide and stuff like that, collateral, the whole thing, a full exact number we'll probably never know. The whole world's a graveyard. Essentially. And um, that's
0: that's a little bit of the story here too, is there are still bodies that are buried essentially where they fell. So as developments are happening, particularly in France and Belgium, where there is a huge concentration of warfare along this narrow strip known as the Western Front, you can't find everybody. And so bodies are just left there. And nowadays there's developments going in, there's roads and they're digging things up and they're still finding bodies. Um, And I'll come back to that a little bit later. So that's your little recap of what the First World War is. As I said, there's a little bit more long form one in the First World War Memorials episode, but we shall continue from here. So context about war burials and war graves and that kind of thing. So it was very common pre 20th century for war dead to be buried communally, like in a one grave kind of thing or spread out, large form, dig up the earth, cover it all over, not individual holes.
1: Uh, In those mass graves, would they have had individual caskets, or was it... No. Did it kind of depend on the circumstances of... Just
0: bodies. Gotcha. So, buried communally in a marked military grave. Um, So it was essentially commemorated as, here lie the fallen of such and such battle or such-and-such war, whatever. Mm -hmm. Though sometimes notable personnel would be given a separate burial or marker. So if you were like an officer or something, you might get your own headstone or memorial or marker and separate burial. So that's what they were doing pre-20th century. And in the early days of the First World War, there was not a great system set up to report and record deaths. Because this the style of warfare that was happening and the intense fighting and the rapid, just the rapidity of the death, essentially, uh, mm-hmm. made it very, very difficult to keep track of those types of things. Contrasted to if you imagine um, two armies lined up in formation, doing battle, and then the battle finishes and they each take their dead, uh, go over the battlefield, take their dead, do what they will with them. The fighting just continues. And there's bodies kind of everywhere, particularly on the western front, which I mentioned was very concentrated.
1: I imagine that the fact that there was a lot of trench warfare probably didn't help just with like the loss of remains as well. Just because, you know, if a mortar hits a trench, it's probably going to partially collapse. And if somebody's already, you know died in the trench or you know is even injured maybe possibly perishes due to the trench collapse
0: yeah and there's that there's that as well um so not only is the fighting is overlapping so essentially the fighting is ongoing over the same territory on the western front in particular over and over again so even if last week you had this battle and you buried the dead from that battle you're still fighting in the same place so more people are going to end up dying more people are going to have to be buried in the same space and maybe the trench collapses or maybe you're doing a covert operation and you're trying to dig under to the enemy lines, which is a thing they did from time to time. And then the, the shell hits and your tunnel collapses and you're just lost. So there's a lot of people who are missing in action who weren't ever hundred percent confirmed as dead. Um, there's a lot of bodies that were just unidentifiable, because they decayed too much before they were pulled for burial, or they were in pieces. Yeah. Um, so could not be identified. So, logistically, a nightmare.
2: Yeah, because there probably wouldn't have been anything quite like a no-man's land in previous wars, where you, like, yeah, maybe you have catapults, but most of your shit you're doing... It's, it's person to person, right? Yes. You're you're stabbing people, and you're cutting people, and you're bludgeoning them. And you're, you're shooting up close them. and personal. And, like, maybe maybe you've got people with bows and arrows, or slingshots, or, like, long-range shit. But that's Muskots, the yeah. bulk of it, versus once you get into the First World War, you've got this whole mechanized weapon force that is just raining hellfire on you from a distance. Yeah, like, good luck getting anybody out of that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So essentially battlefield dead were sometimes attempted to be buried if they weren't already, or sometimes they just stayed where they had fallen in the mud, in a shell hole that had been filled up with water, just anywhere that they, they fell because they're still in an active war zone. Yeah. It's not like the battle is over. Those who died in the hospitals behind the lines there was usually a small cemetery near the hospital building or by the, the makeshift like tent hospital, basically. So that was a little bit more straightforward. You're injured. You're taken back. You pass away. You're yeah. buried. And you kind of know who you are. You're not so unknown or not so lost. So as you can imagine, and as I've said, this is a logistical nightmare. And so It was decided that bodies would not be repatriated to their home countries because of the logistical nightmare, but it was also a little bit of a symbolic choice, leaving the soldier where he fell. Mm -hmm. It's also symbolic in the unity of fallen soldiers in battle, um, keeping them together. So it's logistical, but it's also symbolic. I do want to share, because you know I like my pictures... <clears throat> so this is a map of the western front. So it just gives you a sense of the concentration of the fighting.
2: Oh. Uh, and
0: don't I think also I realized have
2: how much of it was
0: fully in France. <laughs> oh yeah. Basically France, Belgium, that's it. And then yeah. In contrast, here I haven't been talking about the eastern front very much. I know a lot more about the western front because I'm Canadian. We're Canadian. Canadians fought on the western front, so in school we learned a lot about this.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. um the eastern front by contrast there's a map there okay so the green line is the farthest advance of the central powers army and the uh, i don't know what color that is like a burgundy brownish color on the left side is the russian advance so the eastern front was for the most part russia versus germany and austria-hungary um, although there was some fighting down in Turkey, as I mentioned, which was known as the Ottoman Empire at the time, um, the yeah. Gallipoli campaign, um, the Ottoman Empire versus France, Britain, and I think Russia as well. I might be mistaken on that, but you can see the spread. <laughs> so, that's um, a, yeah, that's a lot. The Eastern Front was much more mobile. And so yeah. it was a little more difficult for me to find information about cemeteries because there was so many spots in here where they could have been buried but i am getting a little ahead of myself i just wanted you to be able to, to visualize what i'm talking about oh yeah so yes the western front the western front had on one side the allied powers that were mostly fighting on the western front were france The British Empire, which included places like India, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, the Commonwealth, basically. Mm. Belgium, the United States, and then very minorly, Portugal, Russia, Italy, and so on. And then on the other side, the Central Powers, which Germany and Austria-Hungary, mostly Germany on the Western Front. Basically, we've got Germany versus France, Belgium, and the British Empire are the big players here. Yeah. And so, accordingly, a lot of the casualties are from those places, including the British Empire. A lot of Canadians buried in the cemeteries along the Western Front. Okay, so there are about 1,000 military cemeteries on the Western Front, mostly in France and Belgium. Um, There's also a large number of memorials for the missing, presumed dead, because as I mentioned... There's shells falling, there's trenches collapsing, there's chaos happening. And sometimes, yes, sometimes people just go missing because they're buried under 12 feet of soil and mud. Additionally, almost one third of the bodies from the First World War could not be identified. Mm -hmm. Um, They might be in pieces, they might be just too decayed by the time they get to them. So... You might be wondering, how did these military cemeteries come to be? You have the war, which is totally chaotic, and then you have the cemeteries. So the explanation is this. There was a huge push by a man named Fabian Ware, who I think he was affiliated with the Red Cross, if I'm not mistaken. He wanted to see a more organized way of honoring the dead, of the first world war i believe he's a british man so he's thinking on the allied side but in war all men are equal in death so no matter if they went and found a british soldier or a german soldier they would be buried just the same so there's this commission called the imperial war graves commission which is focused mostly on the british empire and they go through these battlefields towards the end of the war and after the war and the makeshift burials that had been done along the way. They started digging people up and transporting them to the nearest local designated spot where this military cemetery would be going in. There was some land that was earmarked in France in particular um, by the Treaty of Versailles for these purposes. And basically it's like this huge endeavor of digging up bodies transporting them, however short a distance or long a distance to that military cemetery, that designated spot, and reburying them. And one of the main principles is no matter what the person's rank, they would be buried with the same marker. So like, there's no distinction between an officer and a private. Everybody has the same recognition because they all died for the cause basically so it's a very egalitarian methodology which makes for really striking cemeteries when the headstones or the crosses or whatever are all just there's just a sea of the same thing you can it just amplifies the scope of death when you see that compared to like a a mish mash of headstones like you would see in a lot of um, north american cemeteries yeah yeah it's just a field of crosses
2: yeah it's interesting too the but the very egalitarian nature of everybody gets the same burial both hits a ner- or hits a note with the guillotine as an equalizer of death during a time of massive political upset and also the kind of anonymity of the people being killed by the people doing the killing in the First World War that wasn't present in previous wars, right? Because now there is that distance and now you're just hitting human targets, mm-hmm. essentially. So I just, there's something very interesting that is both um, sad and powerful in the way that the Great War reduced people to... These are people who fought and died. Mm-hmm. and regardless of everything else this is where they fell that's what we know this is Gotta their be that's what I find so interesting about mass
1: burial sites or places where like there's large depots of human remains is it's like a reminder that you know death is the ultimate equalizer mm-hmm um, several years ago, I went through the Paris catacombs and as part of the tour, they're like, yeah, there's like a finance minister in here. Like, no. you know, like catacombs, a, catacombs, catacombs, <laughs> catacombs. <laughs> tomato, tomato. It's catacombs, <laughs> catacombs,
2: <laughs> it's not, <laughs> but okay.
0: <laughs> Anyways, the one last, um, thing on the, the Western front here is, it's roughly the the cemeteries these thousand military cemeteries that i mentioned are roughly divided into like four sectors um two are in belgium and two are in france so you've got the Yser battlefields and the belgian coast which is obviously in belgium the ypres salient battlefields also in belgium Um, french flanders and the artois battlefields in france and the somme battlefields which are in france so Mm -hmm. um depending on what battles you were in and where you happened to die, you will end up in one of those sectors of cemeteries. And they kept very detailed records of the people that they could identify and knew their names. And um, there's a lot of different government agencies responsible and I'll, I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but first I wanted to briefly cover the Eastern Front. So refer to your your lovely map. Fighting on the Eastern Front, we have on the side of the Central Powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire. And then on the Allied side, we've got mostly the Russians. They're the big ones on the Eastern Front. Also, Romania. And then limited involvement, Serbia, Belgium, the UK, and France. Um, Mostly in Gallipoli, I believe, the UK and France were. On the Eastern Front, we have about 1 million dead for the Central Powers, according to this lovely chart that I procured from Wikipedia, although I don't know how accurate that is. Um, And then on the Allied side, there is about mm, 2.5 million dead. Mostly Russian, like 2.2 million of those are Russian. Yikes. Again, the numbers are hard because so many people went missing. Even today, we don't know exact numbers of how many people died. So yeah, as I mentioned, the lines on the Eastern front were a lot more mobile. It wasn't a set of trenches that moved however many yards in one direction and then back the other way. It was it was a lot more mobile. So the cemeteries and the burials are much more spread out. And mm-hmm. you could more easily bury people after uh, a battle or a skirmish or whatever, and they could stay where they're lying without um, needing to be reburied because they're no longer in an active war zone. Yeah. Also, there wasn't as much of a push from a government body or entity to do a re- mass mm-hmm. reburial like they did on the Western Front. So they're, they're a lot smaller, a lot more um, spread out, basically. Yeah, there's a good amount of fighting that happened across uh, Galicia, which is an area that encompasses parts of Poland and Ukraine today. And for example, I found a a list of a cemetery that included Hungarians, Czechs, Poles, Croats, Russians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Armenians, and Georgians from the First World War. That sounds like a lot. Some of these are ethnic groups that are within the empire of Austria-Hungary at the time. Austria-Hungary was a lot bigger. It included a lot of the Balkan region at the time. And also the Russian empire included some of these places. So um, Mm -hmm. we know a lot of those as independent countries today, but that's why they weren't listed on the uh, belligerence list that I gave earlier. They are part of one of the bigger empires. And In this case, I found um, some inscriptions given as examples for some of the Eastern Front memorials or cemetery headstones. One example that I really liked was a very short line. We were longing to fight. We have found peace. And then another one. I don't know if this is in English or if they've done just kind of a poetic translation, but in any case, um, in life at odds, in death reconciled. Together their bones are buried here, because no matter who they were, what they meant then, it matters they remain faithful. So, uh, people from both sides of the conflict being buried in the same cemetery, all equal in death.
2: Yeah, because like I don't think like when you talk about the Great Wars and stuff, it like there's never any clear winner because it's such a dramatic toll on everybody involved. Mm-hmm. Right? Nobody comes out being like, yeah, we did a great job, pat on the back, boys. Like, no, everybody comes out of it mourning and sad and yeah. beat up.
1: Yes. Everyone comes out of it just happy that it's over.
0: hmm yeah. yeah, and like I said, the the numbers of total deaths, military deaths that I mentioned earlier, it ostensibly was 9 to 10 million on the Allied side, and 7 to 8 million on the central Powers' side and as far as the history books, books. <laughs> <laughs> as far as the history books are concerned the allied side won but they lost yeah. more people right yeah cuz
2: it all just comes down to who's forcing who to sign what paper that benefits what right yeah exactly in terms of winning it Quote feels unquote. like semantics to say anybody won in a world's conflict yes so that covers a huge swath of
0: the Eastern Front, but I also did mention um, the amount of fighting that was going on in the Ottoman Empire, known as the Gallipoli Campaign. Yeah. So that's another significant place where there's a lot of cemeteries, technically on the Eastern Front. So the, Gallipoli, the fighting in Gallipoli was in 1915, and my understanding of it is that part of the Ottoman Empire was serving as a supplies route, and it okay. also was a, a place where the Central Powers could disrupt shipping. So Britain and France had interest in the Suez Canal, which is uh. the canal that leads from the Mediterranean to the Red Sea, so basically joining Southern Europe waters to Asian waters. So in order for the Allied powers to get supplies, they had to make sure that they could get through that area safely. So Britain and France wanted to weaken the Ottoman Empire's position there. So that ostensibly was the purpose of the campaign. And there are one French cemetery, 31 Commonwealth war graves cemeteries, which includes soldiers from Britain, Australia, New Zealand, India, and Newfoundland. Because Newfoundland was not part of Canada at that point. Yep. It was a colony. Of Britain I, know, still. I know
2: people who were born in Newfoundland before it was uh, <laughs> like, made part of Canada. Hmm.
0: And there's also about 50 memorials, gravesites, cemeteries, etc. To the Ottoman casualties as well. And so while I didn't learn a lot about Gallipoli when I was in high school are first learning about the First World War because mm. they mostly taught us about the Western Front because that's the part that Canada was involved in. I do wish I had learned a little bit more about the Eastern Front and about this because I do find it interesting that yeah. other parts of... I'm not an imperialist, obviously, I just said fuck imperialism <laughs> earlier, <laughs> but like yeah. other parts of the British Empire or the Commonwealth that we are also a part of were involved in that so i sometimes feel like australia and canada are kind of very similar in some ways like we have a very parallel parallel histories
2: yeah they're our southern hemisphere twin kind of
0: yeah and also in like issues with first nations people and first nation the term first nations is kind of a uniquely canadian one but i recently learned that they also use that term in australia
2: oh so it's not
0: something that they use in the u.s for example
2: yeah yeah, I know that some of the terminology is is definitely different in Australia versus, yeah, the United States, Canada, mm-hmm. uh, New Zealand, so on and so forth. Because yes. continents, really, where you live shapes your experience a lot. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: all this to say is that, much like Canadians, really had a, a national awakening in World War One because of Vimy Ridge which is a battle Mm -hmm. that Canadians were a part of and was very successful. Um, Australia and New Zealand are really proud of their involvement in Gallipoli. And so the 25th of April, which is the anniversary of the landings, is known as ANZAC Day, N-Z-A-C Day, Um, in Australia and New Zealand. It's more celebrated, if that's the right word to use, more observed than even Remembrance Day.
2: Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know little to nothing about Gallipoli at all. When you brought it up, I was like, oh, is that how you say that? Like, full know nothing about... I don't know very much about the the Great Wars. They aren't my main like, area of interest when it comes to history because they're complicated and I find yes. uh, war tactics and movements very confusing. Uh, I'm not really into uh, that either. <laughs>
0: there's so many aspects of the first world war I like more yeah. of like the big picture and social social, social impact yeah. yeah and discourse and how it changed society and stuff so yeah I level not saying that's better than there's some people that are really into the, the minute day-to-day military movements but that's a little too granular for me
2: but yeah I, I this is the most I have ever learned about Gallipoli so <laughs> Well, that's all
0: I really had on that. I'm sure there's much more, but this is not an episode about the Gallipoli campaign. I don't know if our listeners would be super into that. All that to say is there's many cemeteries there um, with war dead from Gallipoli buried there.
2: So I'm curious, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, but how was land like selected and agreed upon for burying the dead without that beco- those becoming like targeted sites, or were they targeted sites? You mean
0: targeted as a a military... ooh.
2: Yeah, kind of as... I mean, again, I know nothing about military theory, I'm not a tactician, Mm. and I hate strategy games because of it. Um, (laughs) I I
0: think it was more of like respect for the dead. Um, As far as the selection of land, I did mention that there was some uh, provision in the Treaty of Versailles that there would be land set aside in France. And my understanding is the original conception was that France was going to build and maintain them.
1: Mm-hmm. And then
0: it was, a, that seemed a little too much because it wasn't just going to be French dead buried there. It would have yeah. been like any war dead, basically, um, yeah, including Germans in a lot of the cemeteries because Germans did die in France. And so I think the the UK took on some of the administration as well, and the Commonwealth War Graves Commission which is what it's known as today that was the this that's Mm -hmm. the modern name of the Imperial War Graves Commission um they do a lot of administration for the sites on the western front and in Gallipoli because the UK was involved in those those spots so okay speaking of I mentioned earlier that I was going to get to some of the agencies responsible for taking care of these cemeteries the Commonwealth War Graves Commission is the big one they have records of all Army, Navy, Air Force, Merchant Navy, and civilian deaths um, in the Great War from the UK, Australia, Canada, India, New Zealand, and South Africa. Damn. Yeah. Those are some big books of lists. <laughs> yes. Um, and if you've seen one Commonwealth War Graves headstone, they, lo- they all look very similar. Like I said, there's not a lot of variation in designs. There's some in a cemetery here, like in the town that I, I'm living in, and I've seen them. So the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission is the, the big boy as far as the, the UK, the British Empire is concerned. Um, records for Belgian dead are held in the archives at the In Flanders Fields Museum in Ypres, which is one of the four sectors that I mentioned, one of the two in Belgium.
1: I was wondering if you're going to talk about Flanders Fields.
0: Well, there's French Flanders and there's Belgian Flanders. Um, Double Flanders. I learned recently, I've been doing, this is sort of related. I've been doing some genealogical research recently, and I do have a great-grandfather who we are pretty sure immigrated from Belgium. Oh. He was Flemish. um, Okay. Flemish Belgian, which basically means he was Dutch. (laughs) Dutch Belgian. Because there's Dutch Belgians quote unquote and French yeah. Belgians so they speak either those languages um, interesting Belgian oh, yeah. is like a a dual nation kind of yeah, like Canada
2: yeah or like a, a like a New Orleans sort of situation yeah like two very prominent
0: um languages not yeah. to say that there's not many many more languages spoken throughout Canada um, yeah but just from the way that colonialism had its hand on Canada, French and English. Um, yep. Anyways, that, that was an aside. So, yeah, so Belgium's records are maintained at that museum. The, for France, the French War Graves Agency is called Le Ministère des Pensions, which is, looks just like pensions. Um, and it was founded during the first world war cares for the military graves from world war one to the present day. So not only, not just the world war one graves, and that's the same as the commonwealth war graves commission. They take care of second world war and everything between then and today.
2: Wow. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of dead to take care of. Yes. There are
0: some Russian graves on the Western front, um, near Marne about a 1,000. They are also cared for by the French War Graves Agency that I just mentioned. And though the US came into the First World War rather late, they joined in 1917, there is an agency called the American Battle Monuments Commission, which is responsible for the World War I graves of the United States Armed Forces. Moving over to our Central Powers, starting with Germany as the the largest. I didn't find a whole lot about anything else. Germany's the big one. So when the First World War ended, Germans had been taking care of the small military cemeteries where some of their dead had been buried. But mm-hmm. that ended because <laughs> they wanted the Germans out because the war was over and they there wasn't really a lot of trust there, to be honest. Yeah. Um, so at that point, the responsibility for the maintenance of German graves in France, Belgium, wherever else, for example, was not in German hands any longer. Mm-hmm. They were the quote-unquote defeated party and yeah. responsibility was handed over to each nation that the dead were buried in. The Germans didn't really like that, um, understandably so. Yeah. Yeah. You want to care for your own dead. And so there's an organization. I get to use my moderate German skills here, pronunciation skills. The Volksbund Deutsche (laughs) Kriegsgraeversuche.
2: What I got out of that was German people.
0: Yes. So it it (laughs) means the People's Association of Care for German War Graves. Okay. Here forth known as the VDK. Okay, the VDK, Um, it was established after the First World War. And there are they think the VDK thinks there's probably about 80,000 German soldiers who died in France whose remains cannot be accounted for in the military cemeteries, just as a as a little tidbit there that I found along the way. So there are some of their dead that they they don't officially have spots for in the cemeteries. Oh, damn. So the the mission of the VDK was to find, identify, and honor the German dead of the First World War. Mm -hmm. They started this after the First World War. And by 1929, they had completed a survey of 28 countries because Austria-Hungary broke up after the First World War and became a bunch of little countries where there was a lot of dead. The Germans fought on the Western and the Eastern Front, so they were kind of everywhere. And about 50% of German dead were actually buried in France. In Belgium, there was about 130,000, about 400,000 in Poland, about 115 in the Soviet Union, because through the First World War, we have the Russian Empire, and then the Russian Republic, and then the Soviet Union (laughs) It undergoes a, a transformation there. So by the end of the war, it's known as the Soviet Union. Only about one tenth of German soldiers who were killed during the First World War are actually on German soil. So a huge proportion of the dead are not in their own care. Um, yeah, I don't know. I couldn't find information on when that changed exactly. Um, I could have done a little more digging, but today, obviously, things are uh, a little more peaceful <laughs> between the nations. so the the Germans do get to care for their own dead in those cemeteries. Um, So moving on to Austria-Hungary, there is a department, another governmental branch called the Kriegsgraber Abteilung, which is very similar to part of that German name. Just the Mm. Department of War Graves is what it stands for. Um, Main goals, like many of the others, to record lists of the dead, exhume corpses from battlefields for reburial, and design, construct, and decorate war cemeteries. So um, each belligerent had kind of their own version of the same thing because they couldn't be repatriated. There's a lot of foreign dead buried in their each of their respective countries. Mm-hmm. And so they this was a logistical problem that they had to deal with. And so this is where government comes in. <laughs> Whether or not yeah. they were super effective is a whole other question. <laughs> Um, I did tease off the top that I found a few stories about bodies being discovered even nowadays. And that's kind of what I'm going to finish up with. So two stories. Um, There's a private whose name was George Nugent of the Northumberland Fusiliers. Um, His remains were found in 1998. Well,
2: that's a long time after the war.
0: Yes. Um, And he had been killed on July 1st. The first day of the Battle of the Somme in 1916. He was recorded as missing in action at the time. And they found his body in 1998 um, near a mine crater that had been blown on that day. It actually has a name. It's called the Loch Nagar Crater. And he was reburied in 2000, actually, the 1st of July, 2000. So what is that? Um 84, nine, 84 years after he died, to the day.. In a military cemetery, he was reburied. Yeah. So that's uh, one story there. And uh, another story takes place in France, near Fromelles. Um, in 2007, hundreds of British and Commonwealth military dead were discovered, mostly Australian, it seems. Um, They were discovered in a mass grave burial pit near Fromel. It seems that they were buried there after action at Fromel, which was between the 19th and 20th of July in 1916. And there was a lot of casualties who were suffered in some of the British forces, which included Brits. And of course, Australians, they were fighting under the the British as part of the Commonwealth or empire. Mm -hmm. And so they found... The bodies uh, in 2007. So the, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission took on the responsibility of digging them all up, trying to identify and trying to do DNA testing to see if they could figure out who these fellows were. Um, I don't really have much information on how successful that was, but it mm-hmm. was definitely something that they tried to do. Um, and then they reburied them, reinterred them in a military cemetery in 2010.
1: Damn, I know that there's still excavations going on, like, around Europe about, like, concerning World War One sites. So I think, uh, and maybe you can speak to this, but um, I think they're still expecting to find people, like, going forward. Like, it'll be interesting to see when the last soldier... From this, oh, I'm sure we'll be
0: long dead by then. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, as will they. Well, uh, they're already dead. But like, well, can you? Well, they're rem- already dead, but they'll be much longer dead. So,
0: so I guess the um, the ones that we would still be looking for are the ones who were never buried purposefully. They would have mm-hmm. been buried by shellfire or just never given a, a marker or whatever. So I imagine there's a lot out there. There's a lot of people who weren't counted in the death toll. And this is why the numbers are so uncertain, because like uh, George Nugent, he was Mm. marked as missing. Presumed dead, but he was marked as missing. So he wouldn't have been in that death count until they actually found his body. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, they... There's developments happening in France, like putting up new houses or roads or whatever. And yeah. especially in France and Belgium, <laughs> they're going to find bodies. I remember talking about this in history class, like giant farms and they're just tilling up the land um, in Flanders or wherever. And oh, we, found, we found another soldier. They're just everywhere. And... I don't know, I'm not really like a a spiritual paranormal type person, but I personally would find that fascinating to live in a place like that, but also wildly unsettling at the same time, knowing how much death and destruction there was there.
2: Yeah, It's, it's really interesting to me that in this like unimaginable scale of death event that military cemeteries and, like, the Tomb of the Lost Soldier that we talked about are kind of the means of memorial. Um, and I have lived in Europe. I've, li- I've lived in the UK and I've lived in Czech Republic. Uh, not for huge amounts of times, for various reasons, but there is a certain casualness about death and the fact that you're probably going to turn up skeletons if you break new ground anywhere. Um, but also the fact that with these kinds of death tolls, the that they were given cemeteries and they weren't placed in things like the Paris catacombs or the Brno catacombs which is the second largest in mainland Europe or sepulchers or which are like the buildings that use bones as construction materials and mm. stuff that are just kind of like we have too many dead and we don't what we have so many skeletons that we don't know what to do with them. And I don't know if that's mm. just the distance between being able to identify them or the nature of the death that they suffered as a lot of them were away from home and facing whole new means of very cold and distant death rather than being killed up close and personal or by plague mm-hmm. or that sort of thing. Well, I would say that
0: the, the function of honoring the war dead has a huge role in it. Why they're put into cemeteries like they were rather than as you're saying, like catacombs or Mm -hmm. um, uh, anything else really like using their bones in that way, even though that was something that they were doing in Europe. Um, Yeah.
1: I also imagine that, you know, because there was so much death, like when the Paris catacombs and everything were like created, You know, it was from a large death event, but also, like, it was... It's different when it's over several years, and you're constantly having this, like, stream of corpses to deal with and human remains to deal with. I imagine that probably also affected it, because also everybody who was probably available to do the work of... Because, you know no no one came back from the front as a skeleton right like they were still yeah they still had meat on their bones right so there's a lot of yeah. work that needs to go into it that way and you know everyone who's going to be able to basically or have the know-how to strip uh, a skeleton or anything like that is probably yeah. using that skill up on the front right so yeah, i imagine i wonder if that time. had to do with it
0: well it's yeah. it's also a purposeful thing to make mm-hmm a spot for pilgrimage for the yeah. people left behind um, and that was a, a big thing not only with the cemeteries but also with some of the larger memorials to the missing in France along the Western Front in Belgium um, which I didn't really talk about much if at all in the memorials episode. I was mostly focused on memorials for the families back in the home countries. Yeah. but by the early 1930s there were huge memorials to the missing of each country put up like we have the the Vimy memorial in yeah. France that is dedicated to all Canadian missing of World War 1 for example um and those are spots of pilgrimage for people so you can either if you lost someone and they found their body and they're buried in a cemetery, you would go visit their marker in the cemetery. Or if they yeah. were just one of the missing, you would go to the memorial. So um, it's a, a meaning making act, burying them in the cemetery or putting uh, a memorial together like that. So, yes, there's the a yeah. logistical nightmare of dealing with all these bodies. But you also have the people who are still living who are missing them. Yeah and want to have some kind of closure in some way so to have somewhere to go whether that's in their local town and you can see their name on the memorial or you can make a pilgrimage to france or to gallipoli or wherever Mm -hmm. and honor them there then um that's what you do that's what you've got to do to get by so
2: yeah the the way one dies is important yeah yeah the how one dies it impacts how one is remembered quite a lot. And who knows, there may come a day where they're like, we... Uh, we need to develop this land. Uh, I guess we're building catacombs. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> like I, I think I think we're probably a couple centuries
0: removed. Or that will be a couple centuries in the future at this point, but who's to Potentially, say?
2: Potentially, yeah. Cause, so I don't know a lot about the Paris catacombs, but I know that the Bruno catacombs, so do know was the city that i was studying in while i was living in czech republic and while i wasn't able to visit the catacombs because i was there during plague times a lot of the victims that were in there were military dead from like swedish invasions mm. and other like pre-great war uh military conflicts as well and i think part of it was just that so many people wanted to be buried buried on like hallowed ground and the church was like we don't have any more ground <laughs> Ah! Uh, and that that idea because like a lot of places in europe also have like short-term burial sites where it's like you pay for an amount of time and then either your body gets married or someone gets buried on top of you mm. uh, like there's the famous uh there's a famous graveyard in paris i can never remember the name it the name of it off the top of my head but you have to pay for a certain amount of time so it yeah, it's, it's just it's interesting within the context, too, of how we deal with death from other major death events mm-hmm. and the exceptional nature of the Great War of losing, you know, 18 million people in four years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I like to talk about it. That's why I like to learn about it. It's just yeah. so incessantly fascinating to me. I don't get tired of it. So um, that's that's all I had for you folks this episode. And we will wrap it up because my lights are still flickering. It's very windy outside.
2: (laughs) Um, Weather's crazy in our province right now.
0: Yeah, it was dry as a bone until late October and now it's just pissing rain. Oh my god. (laughs) It's really going... Mortals Podcast is created, hosted, and edited by three morbidly curious individuals, Christia, Mariah, and Janine. You can find us on Twitter at Podcast Mortals, on Tumblr at Mortals Podcast, and on Instagram at mortals underscore podcast. Our music is a mermaid's eulogy by Etienne Roussel. Thanks for listening, Mortals.
1: Take care of yourselves out there.
0: You're the resident archaeologist. Bones are dry, right?
1: Um, <laughs> After a while. Yes. What the fuck kind of question is Not that? Not fresh bones. <laughs>